Richard and I are here. And, uh, Sorry, we're ready to take anybody's questions about it. You can drop it in the chat. You can uh, get a little cue going. That kind we'll of. Thing. A, let me jump in on a couple things. So yeah, one, go ahead. Scott, do me a favor. See if I made you the actual host, and see if you can make me co-host. Maybe that's why I can't see shit. Um, so one big shout out to our sponsors of. Um, Sindoso, Scratchpad, MedRep Meeting, Vidyard, and Outreach. If you're looking for tools, please check them out as you go into Grow into 23. We appreciate all their support. Um, just out of curiosity, if people would go into the chat, where are you dialing in from? Just so we get a sense and context of where everybody is. Here we go. Sweet. Big spread. That is a good spread. Over, that all is. over. Yep. How many people, just out of curiosity, how many people um, have gotten, for lack of a better phrase, screwed or didn't understand or got the, oh my God, gotcha surprise of you didn't know this about your options? Me, I'll go first. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> screwed, look at them. Yep, yep. So, um, and that's why we're here. Like we're totally here to help support. So feel free to put questions in. Um, by the way, we'd love more people to come put their video on. I know we've all got kids and cats and dogs and all that shit. So um, by all means, you know, we get it. Uh, we just know to increase, create and encourage more engagement there. So, um, so Scott, let's, let's just start at the very beginning, right? If you think about options, right? You're, you're going in and they bring it up in a, in, at a certain level, What's the difference between an RSU and traditional stock options? Is there a difference these days? Like, what do you know about all that kind of stuff? Well, yes, there is a difference. There's a big difference also between actual equity, which they're giving you in a, in a publicly traded company and options, which they're giving you in a privately held early stage kind of startup. So that's the first thing that you should know. If you're getting stock options, you're not getting actual anything of cash value right now. It's a hope and a prayer that it turns into cash value later on. And so you need to understand the differences there. You give the definition of RSUs, Richard. Do you know the answer to that? I actually don't. I just learned about this one like a year and a half ago. So this is the difference between me and Scott is that it's been a while since I've had, you know, a real job, as I like to say. So I want to make sure that, you know, I know to ask these questions. I'm definitely not necessarily the expert on it. So... Well, RSU is essentially restricted versus unrestricted, right? And um, it has to do with liquidation preferences, <clears throat> I believe. I don't know that I know the exact definition, but I'm pretty sure it has to do with liquidation uh, preferences once the sale or some type of liquidity event is made. And all of those people who have that restricted stock, which is usually the founders, as well as the uh, investors, they're getting paid out first. So here's an example. A couple companies ago, I had hundreds of thousands of shares, stock options, but the company sold for not enough for me to make anything. So I exercised those shares to the tune of about $64,000 they were worth at the time about 180,000. So I thought I was going to not only make a profit, but like those would grow and profit would get even bigger. I made nothing because the only people who got paid first were the investors got paid 
their returns and the founder got paid their returns. And there was nothing left for any of the other executives, let alone anybody in a middle management or frontline level who had been there for a long period of time. I took this company from zero to $25 million and I got a fat goose egg. And you could say that I actually lost money in the transaction just as it pertains to like stocks and stuff like that. So if you've got actual RSUs or actual equity, that's very different than having stock options. You're getting paid first. It's a, it's a little bit higher probability of success, let's say. Got it. So do you, let's, let's go in. So you, you started talking, I think Colin just joined us. There he is. Yeah, there he Colin. is. Hey guys, sorry. I had my clock set uh, incorrectly in the other room and I was getting ready uh -oh. and didn't realize uh -oh. I was coming yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, so, <laughs> Nice um, to see everyone. Good turnout today. Yeah, yeah. Good, good deal. So we're just talking a little bit about RSUs, Colin, sort of what they are, what they aren't. Um, and how, you know, is there a difference when you're interviewing at a place between them offering you RSUs and more traditional stock options? Or if we just tried to uh, perfume this pig of stock options to call them RSUs, so they sound nicer and cooler. So restricted stock options versus um, incentive stock options. That's the question? Yeah. I believe Scott might know more on this one than me. I've never had restricted. I believe it has to do with liquidation preferences and uh, tax. I think those are the two areas that I would left be off different the, there. Yeah, I left off the tax part. I talked about the liquidation preferences. Maybe you can talk to the tax part a little bit. Yes. I'm not sure I know the specific differences because it actually, just like stock options, it's going to vary, right? You could probably have RSUs at one company that are structured a certain way. You could probably have RSUs at another company structured another way. But um, if I recall correctly, RSUs are going to have a higher uh, preference in the liquidation tree. Yeah. I'm not yeah. sure how that will affect your tax. So, so there's a couple of thoughts. So around RSUs too, is that- are you When you say RSUs, are you referring to- non-qualified <laughs> stock options because that's separate yes. right that's also an so or your restricted your RSUs, the same thing. right so hold on so restricted rsus um you know you actually get it at that certain market price right which is different than if you get the actual option to buy at a strike price right so let's say that's a big piece so you have a higher propensity for some level of downturn. If you get the RSUs, you get 2000 shares of RSUs at 22 bucks. If it goes down to 20, you're kind of screwed, right? But I think they're still guaranteed at that level. So that's that's one of the biggest deals and it has to do with the vesting on those pieces. But let's talk about- There's another piece though that I think we should maybe not confuse because NSOs, I believe are different. NSOs is what happens to your ISOs after you leave the company. So, so I want to make sure we're not confusing and ISO For those who don't know. Say that again. Define NSO and ISO because we're using big fancy. Yeah, yeah. So, so ISO is incentive stock options. That's what you're going to get when you're employed at the company. Generally speaking, RSUs or RSOs, what you're talking about, I believe is is different. I think that those are often used perhaps for founders or, or different uh, sort of stakeholders in the company. But at least from my experience, what I've seen for 
employees is generally you're going to get ISOs, which are incentive stock options. They're going to vest over, you know, a period usually of four years. You'll probably have some sort of a cliff, like you have to be there for at least six months or you just lose them, right? Because they don't want people mm -hmm. who just are sort of in and out getting a piece of the company. Um, when you leave the company, however, by law, you can no longer have ISOs. And so depending on what is written into the agreement, you may have 30 days to exercise them or you lose them. Or they, well, they will either way, if you're not exercising right away, like on the day you leave, they're going to convert to NSOs, which is just a, a legal thing. Um, and, I, and again, I think the differences are, are a little bit uh, to do with tax. And that's where you end up getting hit with you know, a tax bill, um, which I'm not sure if you got into, but we can get yeah, into it. Yeah, we haven't where, done that yet. So, so Scott, we'll get tell into people, that piece. Of, yeah, Scott, tell people what happened when you got this one of your options and all of a sudden you had to pay the taxes because you didn't really get the cash yet. Just happened to me too. Yeah. Just happened to Colin too. Well, when you, once you exercise, you're getting taxed as if it's actual income. So if I yeah. exercise, I don't know, $250,000 worth of options, that's what I have to pay in to exercise them. That 250K gets counted as income on my tax return. So I'm now paying 30 something percent taxes on that on top of the 250K I just paid to exercise them. And I don't have this actual money. Yep. So this is a bit of a, a trick and a trap. So when you get lots of options sent your way and you own a significant chunk of a company, you better have the money socked away to exercise those, those so options. I wanna pause there. So I wanna make sure everybody understands. You're granted the options when you become an employee and you vest them. So let's say you just go to your first year vest 25% of those options, right? At that point, you have the mo you have the time you could actually pay for those options, right? Because sometimes yeah. you want to do that. And the goal there is that theoretically you get, if it still has to take a couple of years for something to happen, you could pay a, a, a long-term capital gains tax versus a short-term capital gains. However, you there's still, another advantage too. Yeah. What's that? The price. Well, that's the big one, the, the price, price. Right. So if you get those options, I'm cutting you off just because it fits right in there and then and then I'll hand yeah. it back. But if you let's say you get those options at a dollar, your strike price is a dollar. Okay. Right. And when you go to exercise them, the company has raised another round. They've increased the valuation of the business. So the fair market value of those options, let's say, is now two dollars or four dollars. What Scott's talking about, when you go to exercise those, they're considering that income, the difference there, right? You just three X. And so now you're going to pay taxes on that income. Now, this is not a bad thing per se. If the company is going to have a great exit, you're going to end up paying those taxes anyway someday. But it's a risk because if the company fails tomorrow, you have now just invested all of that money in the company. You're never getting it back. The taxes you're never getting back, it's all gone. It's a wash. And so that's really, I think, the bulk of like yes. where a lot of this comes from and why we have to have these conversations is folks go into these jobs, they get these grants, and they A, don't realize that it's going to cost them probably more money than they often have in their savings account to even really get them. And B, depending upon the timing of when you exercise them, you may end up paying a big tax bill uh, that may or may not ever really amount to anything, right? It could be money lost. And so for me personally, my example, uh, Aircall right now is the biggest investment I've ever made in my life. And I got fired from the company. So how you like them apples, <laughs> right? Yeah. So um, that's that's the reality of it, right? As you put in your time, you do your year, your two years, your three years, four years, whatever it is. And if you really want to capitalize on what was quote unquote given to you as a uh, 
you know, part of your compensation package, you now have to give to the company and to the government if the if the value has gone up. So you are now becoming an investor in that in that business. Yeah. So I want to I want to go back because um, we've got a couple of questions that I think matter uh, on this. So the RSUs, like if or any stock option, if um, if you once you leave, the options are gone. And this becomes one of the challenges. If you're a VP of sales, right? We already know the tenure is 16 months. So they're going to throw you, you know, 1%, hopefully, if you negotiate well. Well, they know that in six, 16 months, you may or may not be there. So yeah, you may get 25% of your 1% and some monthly vesting, but not the whole thing. So be mindful of these kinds of things when you're running into this. Um, so, and when you leave, they just go back to the pool. Mm-hmm. They just go back to the pool. They get to and give them to somebody else. Yes. Yeah. So, and they account for that too, by the way. They, they, yes. they literally, in their you know closed door meetings, they expect a percentage of that to come back their way. Yes. Just to, to give you a, a framework of where you know their minds are at when these are being issued. Yep. Yep. We got a question coming from our buddy Keith. Um, so he says, I have a startup clients who are considering whether they should or could give up equity either to the investor or early key hire, I'd welcome any insights you may have uh, that they or I may not have thought about. So again, the question is startup. Uh, you have startup clients who are considering whether they should give up equity to investor or early key hire. So Keith, if you want to come off mute, if Scott, you'll take them off. You know, is there more context before we jump into answering that, that you want to make sure we understand? Thanks. Appreciate that. Uh, actually, I'm going to leave it kind of high level because I just want to make certain if there's a couple of different perspectives. So I have two clients that I'm talking to right now, both are looking to make that. Do I get that VP of sales? Do I offer them? Trying to build that job description. And quite frankly, given the things we just talked about, I want to make sure that I and they understand all of the short-term or long-term implications of yeah. going down that path for their sake, as well as this key hire. So there's, so there's a couple of thoughts. So one I'll give you is um, it depends on the belief in the company, which then becomes a question of whether or not they should be interviewing there in the first place. Like, do you really believe it? Because um, it's interesting that you say that the, if the founders are questioning whether they should give up equity to early hires, that's a big red flag to me, particularly a VP of sales, because it tells me they don't understand enough. Um, and they're just doing what their VCs are telling them, which may or may not be the right thing. That's a red flag if I'm taking the job. I've taken that job and I, I got screwed on it. Um, so that's my first thought on this topic. The second is, if your VP of sales is going to do it, fight like hell for 2%, 3%. We already know it's going to get tanked at 16 months or 18 months, particularly if they're the first VP of sales. Anybody here ever been the first VP of sales and it, you made it three years? Anybody? Colin, Scott, I know y'all have. Um, not me, never. So that's something you got. So you got to fight tooth and nail. There. And it's hard to get, particularly if the founders don't know what they're doing. Um, so I'll pause there and see what... what uh, it's, a, it's a recruiting question, primarily for me, Keith. Is, you're not going to get me to say yes to any head of sales role where there's no equity involved. None. You'd have to pay me a significantly more, a significantly larger sum that would make no sense, frankly. 
right? Because part of the bet and the mutually shared risk is I'm going to join your tiny unknown little startup and try to make it something because I'm hoping that somehow it turns me into a millionaire. That's just the reality. And that's the shared risk. You take that part away from me. Why am I going to work there? You offer me, let's say a $200,000 salary and a 400,000 on target earnings. Great. But this other company offers me the same thing, but gives me 1.5%. Why would I take your job? I would never. If I'm an early stage account executive, somebody who's like one of the first couple sales reps into the organization, same thing. If the comp is equal, but one company is offering stock options and the company is like product is, you know, equally good and sellable and all that kind of stuff. If, if all things being equal, I would never go to the company that didn't offer me stock options. So if you're not going to offer stock options, you better be offering a whole hell of a lot of something else. Do you, Scott, I used to run into this. It's been a long time, but, you know, people would try to lure you with a lower base salary with more stock options. They would try to lure you with this, oh, we got to take a smaller base, so, but your, your upside's here. Do either of you, Scott or Colin, see that still happening in the world? I think that it still happens. I, I think people have wised up quite a bit um, <clears throat> to that and they don't, they don't fall for it as much, hopefully because people are talking about these things and educating the public you know, more. Yeah. Uh, but it does still happen, both on an account executive and a, a head of sales, you know, level, for sure. I don't think that that's Keith's situation, though. This, to me, just reads as like founders are trying to decide whether or not to give up equity. Um, and when it comes to an investor, if you're not giving away equity to an investor, then the only person you're taking money to from is like a bank. That's just a loan of some sort and that you're paying back interest if you're not giving up ownership in the company at all. I would, I've done a lot of angel investing in the last year and a half. I own fairly sizable chunks of a half dozen to a dozen companies. That's the exchange. That's the value exchange and the mutual risk. Colin, you want to add anything? No, I think you're, you hit the nail on the head. I haven't, assuming I got the question right was, um, are they offering less cash and more equity? And, and how should you react to that? Was yeah, that the that's the question, yeah. like in the recruiting process. Oh, Richard, yeah. you know, we know your base salary should be 200,000 because that's the market, but you know. Yeah, don't, don't do it. And like Scott said, yeah, the market should be smarter now. I think people are crazy if they offer that. They just really aren't in tune with, with the market. Um, yeah, equity is, it's the cherry on top, right? It's their way of saying like, hey, we're, we're taking a huge risk here. We want you to take one with us. But that does not negate the cash compensation. You're you're coming in and you're doing work every day, and the cherry on top may not be there, right? And in in most cases, it's not. In most cases, it will not be there. So yeah. the equity should be the cherry on top. It should be the thing that is in addition to a very fair or generous compensation right. package, and it should be the thing that really wants to keep you kicking when things are getting really tough, right? It's yeah. that extra thing that makes you hang on and have a little bit of you know sort of buy-in to the to the mission. Uh, in the same sense that a that a founder should. I also shared a link. You don't need to go through it now, but it, it's a good uh, breakdown of the difference of NSOs, RSUs, and whatnot 
Um, the big difference between ISO and NSO is NSOs can be given to contractors like 1099s, whereas ISOs are going to be employee only. That's why when you leave the company, they will automatically convert to, to NSO. Cool. Awesome. Right. Thanks, James. Let's, this was very helpful. Yeah. So Clay, I know I asked you to come off mute and we see your question, but why don't you go ahead and give us a little more context? Like, are you, are you looking for a gig? Are you, are you a founder and you're trying to figure out what's appropriate to do for my team? Like, yeah, thanks, Richard. Um, no, so I just actually landed an AE job at another Series A startup. Um, and I was curious, I know a lot of people on this call are either reps or sales managers, maybe a lot of VPs too. But if you're looking at a Series A, maybe even before that, how do you know what a fair amount of equity is when they say a number? Because um, like I... I, when I went through and got my offer, I went and did the math on the valuation, the outstanding shares, what's the fair, what, what's each share worth, um, and stuff like that. Could you kind of walk through some examples though of what a good amount is? Is five thousand a lot? Is ten thousand a lot? Is a thousand shares a lot? I think it's it's hard to to decipher that. I'd be curious to get like to walk through an example together. Yeah, it it, it is hard. Colin, you want to go first on this one? Yeah, I got excited because I love the way he asked the question. Um, a thousand shares, a hundred shares, a million shares, gazillion shares, it means nothing. Um, you don't know how many shares that there are in total. You need to know what piece of the pie you're getting. Um, this is a common thing to look out for. Is and, and sometimes it's unintentional. Sometimes they're just doing it because it's really all they know is just to just tell you how many shares you're getting. But you need to know what percentage of the pie you're getting. Now, as an AE, you may not be able to really get into those details. You should, but it's almost not super important, but in the Pause executive level, What does that mean? You should be able, you want to get into the, what details? What details are you talking about, Colin? Well, so in order to know what percentage of the company you're getting, right? Knowing how many, how many stock options they're going to give you doesn't tell you that, right? You need to know how many there are in total, right? And then that could be 4 million, 20 million. Like they usually pick a number, right? And uh, they may issue more and they may not. So the more information you can get on that, the more you can figure out what you have actually be, been given. So I try to dig in and first figure out how many options in total, right, have even been uh, created. And then uh, how many of those are set aside into an employee pool? Because they'll keep a pool of options that are basically sitting there to, to give out um, to different folks. And usually when they raise rounds of capital, uh, they'll reset that or possibly add more to it. Sometimes they're taking some out of it. And so these are the things you want to look out for. But ultimately, you need to figure out what percentage of the company you're getting. Uh, and you need to know the valuation of the company. And if you know those things, you can figure out really what's being offered to you rather than you know just a huge number, which is often, you know it, it can sound like you're getting a lot because it, it's just this big number. But again, if you cut a pizza into a hundred slices and I give you, you know, five of those slices, it's, it's still not as much pizza, right. As five normal slices. Here's a, um, sure. can let me, let me give like a, a crude kind of way to think about this. Okay. Uh, you're going to be crude. How shocking. Not, not in the way that you're thinking of the word. If you're like a, a frontline employee, like an early stage AE, like you're talking about, if you have a really, really good outcome, congrats, you can probably buy yourself a new car. That's about it. Seriously. If you're a sales manager and or, and, or even a director somewhere in there, you can probably come up with a down payment on a new house. 
maybe not in San Francisco or New York, but if you live in Cleveland, Ohio, or someplace like that, I bet you can get a down payment on your house. If you're a VP, you should be getting enough that at a hundred million dollar exit plus, there's a path there for you to make seven figures on that particular exit. That's a real rudimentary way to look at it. I've so often it's almost said, it's almost like for non-executives, it's about a year salary. For executives, it's maybe two. Yeah, you could say it that way. I've made the joke sometimes with uh, early stage AEs trying to negotiate equity. I'm like, you're trying to upgrade from like a Nissan Leaf to like a Honda Civic. <laughs> like, who cares? It's like it's not going to make that much of a difference in your life. Really, yeah. it's not. I will. Right? I want. I want to pause one thing. The one thing that it will make a difference is it. Uh, it does become your story. It does become something you can talk about that you were at a company at a certain stage that had an exit. That doesn't mean you go brag about the money. Yeah. When, you're, when you are played, there is, so that, that is a underlying piece that could help your long-term growth to get to that next level of manager or VP of sales, which then may turn you into something else, but, you know, and get you greater options. So as much as Scott likes to, you know, I know Scott likes to talk about the leaf and the civic and all those kinds of things. I want to make sure people do see that. Hey, there is a good story here for you. I'm not saying there's no value value in it. I just want people to know what the value is. I can't tell you how many early stage AEs I talk to that think they're going to be a fucking millionaire because their company just sold for $100 million. Give me a break. You just got a $25,000 brand new car that you might not even want. Scott, I just, I the, the expectations need to be set appropriately was my main point yes so scott i've heard, and i've heard you say this too is and, and can you do it right like so you're an ae or an sdr you know i've heard you talk about how do you optimize your salary versus options right because you still do you still preach that well think of, yeah i just had this conversation with somebody that we both know who will go nameless but let, let's say you're an ae and um, in Clay's little note, I think it was a typo, but he wrote 15,000 shares, for example, right? Let's say that he gets a liquidity event and all those shares, this is going to be really crappy napkin math without tax implications and all this stuff, but bear with me. Let's say you sell those, or th those are worth like two bucks a pop. That's 30 grand. You could get a raise to go work for Colin's new company that pays you 40 grand a year higher in base and potentially 80 grand a year higher in total compensation. So in that type of situation, you could leave, go to this new gig, get more guaranteed in one year than you would get from sticking around and trying to like make this work because you have equity. And I talk to people all the time who are like, well, I'm really only staying here, Scott, because you know, of this equity. I'm like, how many options do you have? How much longer of the vest is there? You would have to stay here for two and a half more years to have the possibility of buying a Nissan Leaf, or you could go take this other job somewhere else and make more money now guaranteed in cash. That's the type of math that you need to be doing in your head as you're, as you're weighing these things um, to see which one is worth it. That's what I was getting at, or that's what you were getting at, I think, Richard. Yeah, that that's totally it. And and to some extent, you know, it's the compounding interest 
right? Yeah, I, I would add in a piece. Definition my, of. Am I on mute? Oh, no, I'm good. Um, yeah, I would add in that, uh, and I think this is what you were sort of hinting at or alluding to, Richard. If you're not at the executive level, and, and this is not going to be something that's going to necessarily or potentially change your life, right? Like it's going to be an amount of money that might actually let you put that down payment on a house or something. Sure. Buying a car could change your life, right? But what could change your life more is working for the right leaders at the right company that has the right mission. And you're going to be a part of a story like Richard mentioned, that's going to, you're going to ride that coattail, right? I was very fortunate that my first job was that single platform that got acquired in less than two years for a hundred million bucks, which at the time was like these billion dollar acquisitions now. Um, and I got to ride that coattail, right? I got to to piggyback on those introductions. And uh, ultimately that led me to skipping over the director role and becoming a VP at, at doctor.com. And you know, before I went to single platform, I had been offered a job at Yelp. And those were the two that it came, or and Zocdoc as well. So I had Zocdoc, Yelp, and Single Platform. Now, granted, uh, Yelp and Zocdoc had already blown up. They had already like passed that that stage of like, oh, I was part of getting them there, right? But I was able to be part of that at Single Platform, and so um, that for me was was the right choice. So I think that that's very important to think about, even as an executive, but more so in those early years. Because to to Scott's point. You know, that that equity is an AE. It's not going to change your life. What's going to change your life more and your career more is working uh, at the right place, the right people. Yeah. Also, I can throw in, I, I pulled up, um, we were talking before about what things to to sort of ask for and, and what numbers you want to know. I pulled up my old spreadsheet. I can't show it to you, but I'll go through um, the different things that I used to calculate you know, to try to figure out what am I really getting? Where Where is all this equity? What does it look like? So you want to find out first, how much capital have they raised? Do they have any debt? What's the current uh, post-money valuation of the business? Uh, how many authorized shares are there? How many issued shares are there? And how many outstanding shares are there? Uh, issued shares is the total, right? So that could be uh, 50 million shares. That could be a million shares. So usually it's a big number and they do that because it it feels bigger when you're distributing them, right? Um, and then you want to get a sense, and this is getting a little bit into the weeds, but this will give you a sense of what's out there and what people have. How many of those shares are preferred shares versus common shares? The preferred shares are like what investors are getting, which means they're going to get paid back first, or they are um, going to uh, maybe get paid back twice on their money before anyone else gets money in a liquidation event. And so asking these types of questions, some founders just may not want to get into it. Some of them may not understand it. Um, but the more you can get these answers, the better, right? And you can have a sense. And, and usually you'll see something like, I don't know, 75% of the shares might be preferred and then 25% are common. And that's because the bulk of it is owned by investors, right? So that would would roughly make sense. Um, you could also try to get a sense of what percentage of the business is owned by founders, right? That's a very good thing to know because do the founders have control over the company or is it already controlled by the board of investors? And then that means that take what your founders tell you with a grain of salt, right? Because they may be gone next quarter because um, they could be voted out. Right. And so what percentage of those options, the last two pieces are in the employee pool, which I mentioned earlier, uh, and which percentage are investor owned, which you can kind of figure out from those numbers. Um, yeah, I will. While you guys are chatting, I'll put this list out here. I just can't put obviously my numbers in here, but uh, I'll see if I can post a screenshot of that. Uh, 
I'm in, trying to uh, capture it right now from, a, from a dictation piece. So I, can I post an image into? Uh, yeah, knows what the Zoom chat? allows you to do these days. Let's see. It does. We got, a, we got a couple similar questions. I wonder if Jafar can ask his last question. Is Clay and Jafar asked the same thing? It's essentially about optimizing for one type of compensation versus another, depending on the stage of your career. Jafar, you want to ask your question? Yes, of course. Thanks a lot, Scott. It was a general question. I wanted to understand what is the standard ratio between the base, and I'm talking right now about the sales in general, base, OT, and the RCU or other stock options. It, does it uh, really depend on the stage of the company or there is some standard basically formula that usually company follow anybody want to take that one sorry i was copying this piece over here i didn't yeah. uh... all right go for it, richard so I, I think that depending on what role you're at the ratio is kind of irrelevant um unless scott or, or colin want to correct me on that because it's never going to be significant right there, there's kind of like you know i call it fuck you money when you get options right there's a seven-figure fuck you money, right? There's a six-figure fuck yeah money, right? There's a five-figure fucking A, cool, all right, that's cool, right? And then I've seen the, you know, four-figure, and I'm not kidding, uh, well, fuck you company money, right? Where it's kind of like you got really screwed by somebody. So from a ratio perspective, I think that's a hard answer because I don't see a standard. Scott, well, see something different or? Well, it not as pertains to, there's no ratio or formula where it's like, right. here's your compensation and therefore you get this amount of stock options. That doesn't exist. The most common ratio for cash is 50-50 or nowadays it's moving more towards 55% base, 45% variable to round out your on-target earnings. Those are the most common ratios by far. There's other ones, of course, but those are the most common. There is no ratio for stock options like that. There are very common sort of benchmarks. So for example, um, the most common kind of benchmark for a VP of sales is somewhere between one and 3%. 1% being far more common, 3% being reserved for somebody at an earlier stage who's been there and done this a few times and is kind of seen as like a as close to a guarantee as there can be. Uh, an advisor or early engineer often gets a quarter percent. Uh, a director level uh, sales leader often gets like a 10th of a point to a quarter point. There's So there's some of those benchmarks, but there's no real good formula, right? But the second part of your question, which you didn't ask, which was a part of Clay's question, which was, is it better to negotiate wages or equity? How do I optimize and prioritize for that at different stages of our career? Colin, you want to try to take that one? Yeah, I think that's going to come down to what your preference is, first of all, right? This could be different for, for different folks, but um, let, let me make sure I'm getting the question right. It, I want to make sure the question is not, should I do that? It is, how should I do it if I want oh, to? Oh, it's how. It's like, how? if I'm just getting started, I would optimize for this. If I'm old like Scott and Richard, I would optimize for this. Okay. So again, I think this is circumstantial, right? Cause, uh, I'm young. I have no kids. I'm not married. 
Um, but I don't know. I could also be old with kids and and still be really short on money, right? And maybe I need to optimize cash. Um, but if I have a bunch of cash and and I really am am okay on the near term and I really believe in that company, well, then you might want to really try to optimize that that equity. And I mean, if the question is how, it's it's. I mean, this is just negotiation, right? I think it starts by uh, just expressing that that's what you would like to do and get a sense if if that's even possible. Um, but again, I don't know that I'd play that angle. I think the angle to play is always to try to get as much of, of both as possible, because at least from my experience, if you're doing well, you can usually find ways to get more equity. Um, I don't know if it's been different for you, Scott, but like if you're really, really crushing it, and this is not, I'm not just judging on my own performance, but just what I've seen and how it's been for other folks that like, if you're really crushing it and they don't want to lose you, there's nothing stopping you from you know, one year into your vest, having a sit down with your manager or your CEO and, and saying, you know, I, I really would like to stay here. And, and I'm thinking about how I can get more uh, invested into the company. Right. And, and some of the CEOs or founders will even give you chances to do this. I've been at companies where um, they've, you know, it would come time at the end of a quarter to pay commission or whatnot. And, you know, this is a bootstrapped company. Um, and they may say, hey, does anyone want to swap their commission for more equity? Right. You don't have to, but if you would like to, and and perhaps they'll give you, you know, an extra, you know, a dollar fifty worth of equity for every dollar you would have gotten in commission or something like that. So you may have opportunities like that. It's not really answering your your question, but um I guess I'm not sure specifically what you're asking for. Is it a negotiation tactic or is it how to frame the conversation? Well, I'll I'll try to I'll try to answer it because I I think I understand what they're, All right, what go they're for saying. It. If I'm if I'm brand new in my career and I don't have a lot of entanglements or obligations or responsibilities, I might take more equity and worry less about cash because I don't have an expensive lifestyle. I don't have a lot of, I don't mortgage payment. I don't have kids going to school, all this kind of stuff. So I might take a big swing and say, fuck it. The difference here in what could be is more important to me than what I'm getting for sure right here and now. Opposite end of that, if I'm 45 years old, married, two kids, mortgage payment, all this kind of stuff, I might be very locked into a particular income level. We lose Scott. And the stock options, while nice, is less important to me. Now I can do the opposite role play. I would argue that early in your career, the most important thing to optimize for is cash because you're really not going to make very much in equity anyways. Like I said, it's the difference between like a $30,000 car and a $50,000 car that you're going to make. Who cares? But optimizing for cash early on in your career gives you the opportunity every time you make a step up to level up what you demand from the open market. So I started my career as a $30,000 base salary account executive full cycle, okay? Then I became a sales manager and my base was 60. Then I moved up to senior sales manager and my base was like 75. Then I moved up to director and it was 90. Then I was a VP and it was 120. Then I was a VP again and it was this. I optimized for those things for the first like five or six years of my career less so than equity and stock options. And then it flipped. And later on, I started optimizing more for stock options. And now I've had a few exits 
I run, you know, a successful business. If I was going to be pulled out of retirement and go be a VP of sales again, the cash that you offer me now would be irrelevant to me because I can make more cash on my own. But if you tried to pull me in and offer me like five, 6%, now all of a sudden it gets interesting because now I have the opportunity to have this fuck you money kind of moment. And so if you're really stable financially, and you're later on in your career, you might not care as much about a $250,000 salary versus a $200,000 salary. You'd rather have an extra half percent in stock options. So it is very personal, but that's that's how I would kind of think about it and, uh, and do my own kind of like mental gymnastics around what's the right move for me. I want to make sure in those scenarios, make sure that you... Um... Make sure you see the initial offer first, like before getting into those details, because you you want to have that baseline of what they were going to offer you, right? So if you're going to go down that road of like having a conversation of, should I go heavier on equity, heavier on cash, like get the base offer first before having that. So that at least you have a baseline for both. Otherwise, you may question like, what would they, would they have given me that equity anyway, right? Um, where I've seen that happen is particularly in bootstrap company where they were looking to bring in a sales leader and they couldn't really afford someone with a ton of experience. So they found someone who could probably do the job and it was a bit of a risk, but they're like, look, you know, we're taking a risk on you. We don't have a ton of money to pay out. That's why we're looking at someone that's got less experience, but we're, we're, we're willing to load you up on equity. And this particular person chose to, to take that risk. It actually turned out really well for him. He would have probably taken years to, to get up to that, that level. Um, and so in that case, it worked out well, but it could have just as easily not worked out well. Um, so yeah, a lot of it's got to do with just how much you believe in that, that business taking off a, and where you're at, a, where you're at in your life. Got a couple of questions, Colin, 23 and a half people want to know, um, why you got fired from here. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> well, I'm happy to share. Uh, but now the, the other question, which I, it's interesting, uh, Mike, um, or what, wait, was it? Oh, Brian, sorry. Um, Brian McCracken, um, if there's more context and you want to come off mute, let us know. We'll be, we'll be glad to have you do that. Um, but it, it was a great question of what happens if I leave early? Can, where can I sell my stock? Do I have to wait for something to happen? Right. So there's great question. So there's this thing called a secondary market. Um, and I'll let Scott and Colin jump in on that one. Either one have an answer. Sure. Um, you may or may not be able to sell on a secondary market. Uh, you will have to get approval from the company to do that, I believe. Um, when I left Aircall, I immediately had people sending me emails and reaching out to me trying to buy my equity. Uh, and their approach to you will be like, hey, we see that you left and you're probably you know, going to lose your stock options if you don't exercise them. And if you don't have the money, like, hey, we'll buy them from you type of thing. And, and what they're looking to do when you get offers like that, if you get one, maybe it's questionable. If you get three, four, five, you probably know your equity is going to be worth something someday because these people are trying to buy it from you at a discount for a reason. Um, so I would only do that if it's your only option uh, or if you just actually think you know something about the company that they don't know. Maybe you think it's not going to be you, worth Where do you go? Now. Like, Do you have to wait? Is there like a special website called the Secondary Options website? Like, uh, There probably is. You probably Google companies that I don't know off. I forget the name of offhand who had uh, reached out. But yeah, there's the companies or investors like they're they're looking. Oftentimes, it may even be people who already are invested in the company and they're looking to get more. 
They want to, they want a bigger piece of that pie. So they're just watching people who leave the company. In that case, they probably have coordinated with the founders. In my particular case, um, the company did not want us selling them to uh, to third parties. Although I think there's probably some legal ways to to maybe push through that. But Scott, you might know more on that. It's just it's really hard to do. Is the bottom line. There's no easy place to go. There's no marketplace to be like, hey, I'm trying to sell all of my air call shares. It's not That's that why it's, if it's existing investors, yeah. there's usually a process for it. Yeah, I've, I've done it before. I've sold um, a good chunk, six figure plus check got written to me that I sold back to current investors who, who wanted, uh, wanted more. That would be where I start. I'd ask the founders, say, hey, is there anybody on the current executive team or anybody in the current cap table on the investor group who's interested in more I'd be interested in selling some or all of my my shares. Beyond that, I mean, if your company's hot enough, it's crazy. People will just find you in the inbox. Yep. You know, you, you don't really have to go out there and, and prospect for it at all. So uh, we had a question from Melanie about negotiating. Is Melanie able to come off? Yeah, I'm off mute. Thank you. Great. Yeah. So yeah, my question was just about the four-year vesting period that's pretty common in tech startups. I was just curious if anyone has ever had success negotiating for a quicker vesting period than four years, or if it even makes sense to do that, or maybe even any insight on why that's the existing model, like why the, obviously it's like for retention, right? Wanting to retain people, but um, I don't know. I think people can make an impact in sooner than, than four years. So I'm just curious. Yeah. Amen. Uh, put on that. Yeah. Amen. The four years came from the stock market, right? Uh, that's the big downside on all of this. If you look at Sam Altman from Y Combinator, he's put together an incredible white paper on what he believes we should be moving towards and shorter vesting uh, for certain roles is, is definitely one of them. But if, if the question or to answer the question of where all this came from, it came from the stock market, companies that have been doing this, not startups, right? And that's why a lot of it feels like out of place and it doesn't make a bunch of sense for us. Um, I have never seen someone successfully get a shorter exercise or sorry, vesting period. Scott, you've been in the game longer. You've probably done it or seen it. So yeah. I hand it to you. Um. That will almost never happen. Almost never. There's no good reason why four years is the gold standard. Somebody we've just asked, made it up. We've actually day. asked some very well-known VCs, people, names you would know. We asked them where it came from and they're like, I don't know. There's no, there's no good reason. <laughs> Somebody just did it one day and decided it was four and not five and not three and all that. So okay. it's garbage, but <laughs> I agree. nobody moves off of it nobody but people don't move off of it at all just because it's too much of like a disruption here's the here's the one place that i've i've seen success moving off of it it's when you're an advisor to a company not an operator of some sort yes. and you're really only going to be an advisor when you have decade two decades worth of experience and you're saying to somebody listen it's a two-year vest for an advisor, not a four-year vest for an advisor. That, for whatever reason, is more of like the standard. And so you can push back on that. I've successfully pushed back on that before in some of my advisory work. People send me option agreements and it says four years. And I'm like, nah, 
I'm not going to wait four years. I'm not an operator in the business. Therefore, I can't control anything happening there. Like all I can do is give advice and you have to execute. So again, the value exchange to be fair, like I'm pretty sure two years would work just fine. And I've pulled that off before. There's also outcomes-based uh, vesting or milestone-based vesting, which I have not read Sam Altman's paper that Colin's talking about, but my guess would be that it's something like that because that's really what matters. Think about this, Melanie and everybody else. I get hired as a VP of sales, okay? I did it six times. The last company I was at, I was there for three years and one month. I took them from no customers to 25 million plus in ARR and a billion dollar plus valuation at the time. I left without being fully vested. Can you imagine? Does that seem fair in the value exchange? Wouldn't it have made more sense if somebody said to me, Scott, I know what you do. You go into early stage companies, you get them from zero to 20 million plus or whatever. Once you do that, you're fully vested. Why, why would that not make sense? Why do I have to be there for four years? So instead, I only got 75-ish percent of what I should have, could have had in my original option grant, whereas they got the full benefit of what I built. You see what I'm saying? So hopefully, hopefully we can start to move the needle and make some changes around the vesting because it's bullshit. There's no real good reason for it. Yep. There are a couple other options too. By the way, I just found an article Venture Beat that says in the 90s, the average time to exit a startup was four to five years. And they say that's where that came from. But I'm pretty sure that's existed it's about since seven, far nine, before seven, this seven. world. Now there it's, is seven, also, it's seven to 10 years now, by the way. Yeah, if not longer, right? Um, but there is also a concept called tiered vesting. I think that's what it's called. And, and what that is, is maybe you're vesting over four years, but you have a different percentage of your equity that vests each year. So maybe um, more than 25% vests in the first year. And maybe it, it tiers, it tailors uh, off, which they're basically saying, and I love this. I've, I would love to get this. I've tried to get this in all of my jobs because as a VP of sales, you're going to do most of the work in the first year. And if you do a great job, the second year should get easier, right? Because your systems are working. The people you hired are working. Um, and so you really do. There's no question. If you spend four years in a VP role, you worked harder in your first two years than your second two, assuming you did a good job. Um, so I think tiered vesting is, is, I think that's one of the things Sam Altman uh, proposes. But he also proposes longer vesting schedules for certain, uh, for certain roles, which is interesting. So he's got some takes that I don't agree with necessarily. So I want to jump in because we're coming up on time. Uh, there's one more question I want to bring up in a second. But uh, again, thank you to Vidyard, Scratchpad, Outreach, um, MedRep Meeting, and Sendosa. That's it, right? Scott, did I miss anybody? Or nope, you got it. You got it all. Uh, by the way, if you don't know, Surf and Sales is happening next week. Uh, actually, Thursday. We leave Thursday. So if you go yeah. to the Surf and Sales event, um, Go register for uh, a newsletter because we're going to announce our new one for spring in the next couple of days. So you might as well tell them right now, Richard, what date the dates are. It'll be the week of May 8th. All right. So Scott teased me, forced me to tease out of it. I'm trying to go get leads, Scott. Come on now. I'm trying to, you know, collect email addresses. I don't believe in MQLs, dude. I just believe in deals. So, uh, but there's, there's one last question. Thank you to our sponsors. We'd love for people to come to the event if you haven't ever been. Um, check out our podcast, surfingsales.com. And then there's a great question that says, 
do you need to get some legal advice when you're going through all this stuff, right? Mike asked this great question of, of before signing the deal, who do you go talk to, right? Do you pick up the phone and call Scott and say, pick your brain, which is a tag of his from yesterday because he loves it. You send me a bottle of Classe Azul, I will definitely have a conversation with you. <laughs> but who, who do you go to? I would say, so I have... There's two things here. One is in general, yes, you're seeking legal advice right now, technically, even though we're not lawyers and, and we're not giving you legal advice from a legal perspective here. But um, but yeah, so I have sought legal advice from uh, advisors, people who've been through this before. You can go to lawyers, right? You can go to a tax attorney who, who deals with this stuff. You're going to pay an hourly rate. I do recommend it at, at certain instances. Um, do you need that to figure out if you should sign an agreement or if an agreement's good? Probably not. Just if you're willing to spend the time to do the research and, and poke your network, I think the information is out there. Um, the safest bet would, of course, be to to consult a lawyer, uh, especially if you're not familiar with reading through contracts and, and understanding how to actually interpret the verbiage. Because the hard part of really making sure you're not getting screwed here is, is not just understanding what all this stuff means. It's actually reading through the document. Um, I think the most important point I'll, I'll, I'll put here and then I'll hand it off to Scott is um, anything that you discuss or have in an email or maybe an email could be used in court, but for the most part, if it's not clearly articulated in the contract, uh, then it doesn't matter. And so you really have to know what you're reading and what you're signing uh, in addition to just understanding all this stuff, because you could go in and have a conversation with your CEO and they could make promises out, out the wazoo, uh, but they may just hand you a document that was the same one they handed you the first time and you may just click you know, to sign it and you're screwed, right? You didn't get anything you asked for, um, even though they may have told you they did. And then maybe they'll be like, oh, I could have sworn that was edited or like, who knows, right? So you have to really know how to interpret it. If you don't, you need a lawyer to to do it or someone who who can look through it for you. Um, but I think probably the most likely time that I would maybe consider spending money is is really at the exercise period when you want to consult about taxes and and really figure out the best way to to reduce your tax bill. That's when a tax that, attorney will be helpful. I think that's right. I, I don't think you need to seek. I personally don't think you need to seek legal advice before signing something. There's plenty of resources online and hopefully plenty of people in your network that you can say, hey, can you spend two minutes scanning this thing? Does anything look weird here? But I think it does make sense when there's money involved as far as exercising and the tax implications or a massive liquidity event. I mean, I don't know how many of us would be prepared for suddenly a million dollars hitting our bank account and what that means. It sounds nice, but it's not without entanglements. So Richard, throw it over you. to you. Yeah, I'll, I'll let you know um, once, once I confirm that I won the lottery, what it's like to anticipate billions of dollars. So, um, but uh, last thing I want to, I want to bring up again, thanks to our, to everybody for joining us um, and go Google this um, in a second, but to Scott's point over the years, Scott and I definitely bounce back and forth. Hey, what am I missing? Just ask someone, what am I missing? Right. Find those people who've done it that, you know, find um, people that you admire and, um, and it's a great way to, to, to just continue to network in, in a lot of ways. The other thing we didn't get into, um, and I please Google this, particularly before you sign something. Um, and it's only because Richard's the one who always freaks out about shit, not Scott, uh, is understanding what a double trigger is, right? Sometimes things happen and it 
for you to get your exercise options, two things have to happen. It could be you're terminated because they were acquired kind of a thing. So there's little, it's, it's a really important thing. So it's called a double trigger. Um, so I, I know we're at time, so I don't want to make people sit around and, and listen, but definitely look that one up on, on Google and, and research that piece too. So in the meantime- Richard, did you guys touch on when to exercise? That, that was That's a big one you might've touched before we got here, but whether to exercise as you're vesting or to exercise all at the end? We talked about it briefly, but if you have a recommendation, go for it. I just I figured it's a good it. topic to make sure we hit. We're up on time, but but yeah, uh, if if you're concerned about when to exercise your options, I'll just throw in this this quick tip. Again, it has to do with what we talked about when I first jumped on. But uh, do you believe in the company? Are you really planning on this being a good exit? If so, there's benefits to vest or exercising as you go because if you hold the asset for one year before you liquidate it you will pay capital gains tax rather than regular tax. And so that is the advantage to exercising as soon as possible. So what some people may do is every quarter or every month, whatever their vesting period is, as soon as they're vesting a monthly you know, accruement of options, they're going and exercising them right away. Again, if you're iffy about the company, you may not want to do that. Um, but that's a, a good way to sort of do it as you go and not get hit with this big tax bill and then maybe uh, reduce some taxes down to capital gains later. Cool. All right, Colin, my man, thank you. I know Scott had to jump. Everybody else, for thank sure. you for sticking around a few extra minutes and thank you for your time and attention. We'll get the recording and stuff out uh, shortly. Take care, everybody. Bye, everyone.